when I was gone, we were, my family and I, we were on the East Coast. I grew up in upstate New York, and so we got to enjoy a lot of time with some of our extended family. Uh, first, what we did was Aaron and I, we went to uh, celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary in Maine, got to spend some time with my family in New York, and then in Pennsylvania, we went to uh, a lake house and had some time with Aaron's family. And some of, the, some of those family members, we only see every, maybe, sometimes only like four years or so at a time. So it was really uh, refreshing and exciting for us to get together. Uh, my kids got to play with their cousins, and there's more of them, like there's more cousins across all of the families, and so that was fun. Uh, vacations, they can be great. Maybe you've been on one already this summer, maybe you're looking forward to a vacation, but eventually every vacation comes to an end. <laughs> and you might know that, you kind of feel that. Sometimes you, uh, you know, when you're coming back home, you can kind of get that sinking or crashing feeling, ah, oh, I got to go back to the routine. So, and I was thinking as we were flying back, I was like, man, I don't want to go back to the heat. <laughs> it's so hot in Santa Clarita. I was in, in the, you know, New England area. It was amazing. It was like 70s and like kind of misty and rainy some days and cool and refreshing and just blow your mind green. There's so much green and lakes and rivers and like I'm going back to the brown, hot, you know, <laughs> Southern California landscape. And, uh, and a lot of, <laughs> most of the grass in my neighborhood is dead. They've got the, those water restrictions going and so... Um, you know, sometimes you're in, you're in a stage of life, maybe, maybe you, you hit a point where you're, you're just kind of reflecting and you're like, man, what am I doing here? <laughs> maybe, maybe you've had a bad job or you're in a bad job, you're like, what am I doing in this job? Or maybe you're in a really difficult, you've been in a different living situation, you're trying to get out of the living situation you're in and you're like, man, I want to move, I don't want to be here. Sometimes you feel stuck, sometimes you feel discouraged and, uh, you, you may feel that way right now, or maybe you have felt that way in the past. But we're going to look at a portion of the Bible today that has some good news for anybody that's found themselves asking that question, like, man, what am I, what am I doing here? Where, where is my life headed? And we're going to read some writings of Paul. Paul was one of the guys who wrote a lot of the New Testament. And actually, some of his writings were from jail. He was in prison. And the letter we're going to look partly at today is the letter to the Philippian church. And he, this was when he, he was writing from a Roman prison. And at the time of writing, he might have been there for about one to two years. And so here, here's actually a picture. This is a prison in Rome or a jail cell that they have found in ancient Rome. We don't know if this is the one that Paul was in. Probably not, but this is, I don't know, looks cozy, doesn't it? <laughs> Every day, Paul woke up in prison, day after day, week after week, probably eating the same meager food rations that he was given. And probably, he probably thought about the festivals that he was missing, you know, the celebrations, the feast days. Maybe he missed out on some birthday parties that people were throwing or the 4th of July fireworks. Maybe he could kind of hear them rumbling from outside his cell, but he couldn't actually experience it. Life for a lot of people was moving on and he wasn't. He, I, I would imagine the temptation for a guy in Paul's situation to say, man, what am I doing here? Gosh, maybe you feel like your daily routine is like being in prison every day. <laughs> maybe you've got a routine where it just feels like so monotonous. Or when you clock out of work at the end of the day, maybe it feels like you're making a jailbreak. You're like, I got to get out of here. As fa- I don't even want to look back. And sometimes you kind of have those feelings. Well, Paul, he actually was in prison. And amazingly, 
He wasn't moping around. He was excited and energized about his situation. And I want to read part of his letter because one of the things that we'll see today is that God gives us meaning in the mundane. God gives us meaning in the mundane. If you've got a listening guide and you want to follow along, you can jot down some of the notes that we have from today. But in Philippians uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 12, he says, he's writing to these people that he cares a lot about, and he says, hey, I want you to know, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. So it has become known throughout the entire, the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I'm in Christ. And I, I would guess probably Paul didn't prefer to be in jail. I mean, one look at that jail cell, you're like, oh, get me out of there. I don't want to be there. But he was making the most of it. And the word that in this verse that I really like, he, he says, actually, he's like, it's actually, there's actually good things happening from my situation. And part of the reason he was writing to them is because uh, this was a group of people that he cared an awful lot about. And they cared about him. At one point, they had sent uh, supplies and help to him. There was one guy that came to visit him that even risked his life to provide some support and comfort that Paul needed. And Paul was, his heart was really wrapped up in these people. And so he, he knew that they would be concerned about his miserable situation being in jail. And he says, no, I want you to know what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. And even that phrase, it's happened to me, sometimes people use that phrase, but it's kind of like from a victim mentality, like, oh, this, this thing happened to me. Like, there's nothing I can do, and I'm just a victim here. He's not talking like a victim. He's saying things have happened to me, but it's actually really good. And so he's got this special bond, and um, he's letting them know that God is really using a situation that most people would really hate to be in. So what faith, what faith Paul has to see the good in a really bleak circumstance? It kind of reminds me of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when Joseph had said, uh, those who had meant evil for me, God turned around and used it for good. That's, that's a real faith position. And so he's saying that the good thing, one of the good things that's happened from my imprisonment is the advance of the gospel. And what that means is people were learning about Jesus. People were learning how to get right with God, how to be saved spiritually. And probably Paul was seeing lives get changed. There were maybe people that were choosing to follow Jesus and their lives were getting turned around. The news was spreading throughout the guard or people that were paying attention. Really, really significant, life-changing, eternity-changing things were happening. And not only that, but believers who were watching Paul were getting encouraged and emboldened. And they're like, man, this guy is having this impact and he's stuck in jail. And like they were encouraged to start sharing their faith. So I love that. There's hope in that because God gives meaning in the mundane. Your, your situation is not as bad as a jail cell, but God can give you meaning in what you're doing right now. And as we read on, there's more. Not only that, but God gives us something worth dying for. God gives us something worth dying for. And I bring this up because there's the other, the other troubling thing about Paul's situation is that he was facing the possibility of execution. Not only is he in jail, but they're considering whether or not they want to chop his head off. <laughs> and once you realize how precarious his situation is, you're like, this guy is a total weirdo. <laughs> Who would be happy about their situation? What's Paul? What is wrong with you? How, are you? how are you this upbeat? You might be days away from execution. And his response to that thought was, for me to live is Christ 
and to die is gain. For him, he said, really, for me to live, for me to go on living in the body, in the flesh, is to use up my life for the interests of Jesus Christ, not for myself. So my singular goal is to know Jesus, to become more like him in every way possible, to actually just for me to focus my mind on enjoying being with Jesus and to tell as many people as possible, to impress on as many minds as possible the truth of good news. That's for him, that's what he's like. For me to live is Christ. That's what he had in mind. And he says, and to die? Well, that just means I finally get to go be with Jesus in eternity. That's a gain because that's a lot better than life on earth. No matter how good your life is on earth, that is far, far superior. So he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, well, this means fruitful work for me. Meaning he, he gets to keep building churches, sharing good news, encouraging and training leaders, allowing people to learn how to do evangelism. This is fruitful work for me. And I, he says, I don't know which one I should choose, as if he's got a choice in the matter. Like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll die or maybe I'll stay alive. I don't know. It's like, it's like he's so entrusted to God. He's like, ah, God's got my path. I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two, living and dying. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Now, what's fascinating is that Paul was totally okay with dying. Actually, he wanted to die. <laughs> he wanted to depart from life. And maybe you've met somebody in that situation. Maybe you've met somebody that wanted to die. Or maybe you've seen that happen. That, that does actually sometimes happen in our lives, in our world. Sometimes people wish to die. Sometimes it's because they have a really, they're in really a lot of pain or they're experiencing a lot of suffering. Maybe they're towards the end of their life and they want to escape the suffering so they wish to die. Other times, people want to leave earth because they're so depressed and disappointed about how their life has turned out that they're just, there's just this distaste and resentment towards life, and they just want to leave. They want to get away from it all. So sometimes people want to die. And in other cases, you find men who are, who are not suffering or resentful, but they're willing to die. Like, you know, for example, we get to celebrate Independence Day tomorrow. And, uh, you know, there are the signers of the Declaration of Independence and a lot of the founding fathers and many of the guys that were involved in the Revolutionary War for years after that point, they had a very clear focus and purpose in their life. And they thought, you know, we've got something to accomplish. And they probably, many of those men probably thought, this is, I, I am willing to die. And actually many of them did die in the war. They believed that their efforts were worth dying for. And so I, that's par partly why I chose my blue shirt with the white, you know, it's kind of like stars. That's what I was going for. I was trying to be a little patriotic, and then James totally showed me up with his <laughs> patriotic clothes. So. But this is, this is as patriotic as I have in my closet right now. But we get, we get to celebrate Independence Day. It is, it is a significant thing. Um, you know, so there's guys that sometimes people want to die. Some people w are willing to die. But Paul, Paul's different than all of those categories. He wanted to die, but he, it wasn't because he was trying to escape suffering and pain. It wasn't because he was bitter about life. In fact, Paul, for all we know, he was pretty healthy in the vigor of his life. He was well-known, successful in what he was trying to do. He had a wide network of strong relationships. His desire to die came from a higher, more pure motive than all of the ones I just mentioned. He had such a strong attachment to Jesus that he just longed to be with him. That superseded all the other desires. So, 
Paul's like, hey, you can take me now. Just go for it. <laughs> it would be a gain if I died right now. And yet there was something holding him back. He felt torn by his desire to remain on earth and to continue his fruitful work with people. When he says, I'm torn between the two, I don't know if you've ever felt torn between, you had like two really strong goals or desires. When we were on vacation, at one point, my oldest daughter, she, uh, Liana, she was like, man, I, she's like, I really want to go see everybody back at Valley Lights and at home and our neighbors. And she was naming all the kids. And she's like, oh, but this is actually really fun where we are right now. Because we were like swimming and fishing. And there's like, they had, there was a lot of like candy and treats and pancakes every day. All kinds of good stuff. So she, was, she felt really, I could see, she felt torn. She's like, oh, I want to go, but I want to stay. My son, Dawson, he was really eager to come back too, but it was, he, went, he missed his collection of stuffed animals. So he was like, oh, my stuffed animals. <laughs> and when we were getting ready to uh, get on the plane to come back here, they started naming everybody, all of you guys. They're like naming as many people as they could think of, you know, people from church, kids on our street, and they were just excited to see everybody. And uh, I, I felt similar at one point. I had these strong desires. We were, when we were in Maine, we were in Acadia National Park, like, the most beautiful place on earth that I've ever been to so far. It's amazing, especially this time of year. And uh, I really wanted to be there, but I also had this really strong desire to get back with my kids because we had been gone for about a week and we were kind of worried about them and I just wanted to have vacation with them and I was excited. But then I also had a desire to be here too. And um, every Sunday morning I would uh, pull out my phone and I'd connect to the security cameras here and I'd watch the services going on because I wanted to see everybody gathering and I was excited to see that gathering was happening. And uh, I, it actually really was encouraging to me. And so I had, I had these competing desires as well. And uh, Paul, he felt torn. And so he, he's got these desires. He had much greater intensity though. So he's a, a candidate for execution. He was staring death in the face. And so he was torn between this desire to go and be with his maker, his savior, and to stay on earth. And it, it actually, if you look at this image of a, of a sailboat or a boat in the water, um, one scholar writes that this word torn that Paul uses, it, it's kinda, it can be derived from a ship laying an anchor, but there's a really violent storm just pushing and blowing on it, almost, almost going to carry the boat out to sea, very, you know, very nearly driving it away. Uh, but there's an anchor. There's an anchor there holding against that, that storm. For Paul, that's, a scholar has written, this is kind of the language from the Greek that comes to mind when he feels this amount of uh, being torn. It's like his desire to be with Jesus was that intense wind, almost going to carry him away for good, that he'd, just get, he'd get blown into the heavenly sea forever. But there's an anchor. There was something tethering Paul in place on earth, something that kept him there for the time being. And really what that anchor was, it was his strong affection for people. For the Philippian church in particular, as he's writing to, his heart was bound to them like an anchor holding a ship in place. And so even though Paul had something worth dying for, a really good thing, he also knew that God gives us something worth living for. God gives us something worth dying for. He gives us something worth living for. Paul realized his time wasn't up just quite yet. And, and so in the next, in verse 24, he says, but to remain in the flesh, for me to stay in the body on earth here, keep living, it's more necessary for your sake. Since I'm persuaded of this, 
I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. So Paul realized sticking around to help more people learn about Jesus was a pretty exciting prospect. And not only was he in prison, but, you know, general living conditions in that day and age probably weren't as cushy as we even have now. It's not even like <laughs> he was staying in a really nice house and had, you know, a bank account full of money and three weeks of vacation. He didn't even have all that stuff. It was actually probably a pretty difficult, challenging life of suffering that he had. But he wasn't thinking about that. He was thinking about how excited he was to be with people and to invest in them. Paul lived an ongoing life of sacrifice. And he, it's almost like, maybe you could even imagine, like, he's feeling anchored. Oh, God's got more work for me to do. I have more people to, I have more churches to start. And he, maybe he could feel resentful about it. Like, ah, oh, I got to finish my work before I get to go be in heaven. He wasn't like that. He wasn't resentful about it. He didn't feel annoyed that there were still unreached people. He delighted. He found great delight in helping people progress in their faith. So his life, as a result of that, that perspective, his life was filled with meaning and purpose. Whether he was in prison or out of prison, he had a lot of meaning and purpose in his life. Whether he was being attacked and treated wrongly, or whether he was experiencing some kind hospitality, somebody serving a meal in their home, like Lydia, who was one of the very first people in the Philippian church, that when that got started. He didn't find purpose and meaning in his career, you know, a lot of us, we have a career that we spend a lot of time on. We spend a lot of energy. We're very stressed out. Many people are very stressed about their jobs at points in the year. And you can put meaning, you get a sense of meaning out of that. He, he, he had a career. He had things that he had earned resources with, but that wasn't his meaning and his purpose. He didn't find meaning in his mailing address where he lived. Sometimes we do that too. Where I, It's because of where I live or I, I'm, I'm a Californian or I need to get out of California or that's going to provide the meaning. I just need to move somewhere else. It, was, it wasn't about where he lived. That's not what gave his life meaning. Followers of Jesus have a unique advantage in life. Whenever, whenever we take that step of repenting of our sins, we decide it's time to get right with God, and we enlist in the ranks of our new commander, Jesus, then our life gets infused with meaning. God gives us something worth dying for, that's bringing, Jesus to honor, or bringing honor to Jesus. And he gives us something worth living for. That's the, a lot of that's just the people that he's put around us. So if you've ever asked that question, what am I doing here? How long do I have to be in this situation? I need a change. What am, what am I doing? You know, a big mistake that a lot of people make in life is believing a really persuasive lie. Actually, probably most of us in this room have believed this lie at some point in our life, or you believe it right now and you don't even realize it. Here's the lie. Life is about my happiness. A lot of people think that. But according to the Bible, life's not about you finding your happiness. There is quite a lot of joy in the Christian life, that's for sure. It's, we experience the joy as we walk with God and we invest in people. But that joy and that happiness doesn't come by the selfish pursuit of our own happiness. So what, what am I here for? What am I even doing? Well, we all have breath in our lungs right now. Our hearts are beating. 
blood is supplying oxygen to all the parts of our body and our brains and we're alive and we have things to do and we have things on our schedule and there's opportunities in front of us, that means, well, what are we here for? We have time to bring honor to God. And we've got time to love and serve other people. And if, as we get clear on God's objective for our lives, and if we continue to, to live on mission, God provides another rich blessing in the journey. God gives us a team to struggle with. He gives us something worth living for, something worth dying for, and amazingly, he gives us a team to struggle with. Because, you know what, advancing the gospel, living on mission, it's not an easy task. So God gives us a rich body of people so that we can do it together. And so Paul encourages the Christians in, in Philippi. He says, um, in verse 27, he says, just one thing. Like, focus on this one thing. Just kind of like sum it up in this one way. He says, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, if you thought about that phrase for a second, hey, live your life worthy of the gospel. You might think, wait a second, that's actually, that's a pretty tall order. <laughs> I'm not worthy? Well, first of all, what does that even mean? How, do, how does one live worthy of the gospel? And first, I don't, I don't know if I'm the person to do that. We're given that command at least four times in the New Testament, so God must think that we're somewhat capable of obeying that command. When we follow Christ, we become holy and set apart for his good purposes. When he saves us, he puts us in a special category. We become intended for his good, thing, his good purposes. We're not, we're not worthy in of ourselves, but Christ living in us through the power of the Holy Spirit enables us to live in a worthy manner. God sets the bar for you and me really, really high. The expectations on how we live and conduct ourselves, they're pretty high. But it's because he's the one living in us, empowering us with his great and glorious strength. So, the bad news, I guess, in a sense, is we don't really get a pass. We can't, we can't live for ourselves. We can't live selfishly. We can't live in the pursuit of our own happiness. We don't get to spend our lives selfishly pursuing our own desires. If you are a true Christian, a follower of Jesus, the Bible says, hey, live your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul gives a little bit more explanation about what that means. He says, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. So standing firm, that just means, hey, you can't be driven by your emotions. You can't be driven by discouragement. We all get discouraged at times. We get real depressed and worn down and apathetic, but we're not driven by that. No, we need to stand firm. We don't get driven by our culture. What society says is right and true. We don't get deceived. It says stand in one spirit, in one accord, which means we need to act as a body of Christians. We need to act and think in unity, working together for the same goal. It says contending together for the gospel. That word contend means to struggle, to work hard, to, for, you know, to do things like we, together we wake up early to pull off a church service, or we sweat out in the sun together working on events or projects, or we invest time at night in small groups, you know, encouraging and sharing with one another. All the things that we do that contending for the faith of the gospel is for the purpose of spreading the good news. And then he says not, to not be frightened by opponents. We've got what seems to be a growing number of opponents to Christianity and to God's ways in our world and our society. It's not hard to find opponents. 
but we don't give in to fear or intimidation. So I, to kind of capture this idea, some of these concepts that he highlights in this verse, I've got a photo of a painting that captures, I think, some of these qualities. So this is, a, I, I love this painting. My friend has this above his fireplace. And um, so you've got some cowboys. I think there's three of them that got their ropes tied around this bear, some more guys in the distance. And I'll actually give a little audience participation for the moment. What, uh, what words do you think describe this painting? Any words? you think of when you see it? You can say it. Rugged. Rugged, nice. Intense. Western. Western. What did you say? Courageous. Courageous. Anything else? Scary. <laughs> Scary. It's a grizzly bear, man. Yeah, yeah, I know. Make sure that rope is pulled tight. The, um, I think that the name of this painting is um, A Sure Grip and Lassos Are Better Than Lead like better than like lead bullets. I'm like, oh, that's, that's, I like the painting even more now that I know the title of it. So, you know, in this picture, these cowboys, they're doing difficult, dirty, dangerous work. But it's work that's necessary and probably pretty rewarding in the end. And I think sometimes I, I see our work like this too, our contending together for the gospel. I think sometimes what we do, we've got to stand firm, be courageous. We've got to act together in unity. Of course, in this picture, they're working together. It has to be done together. Contending, sweating, laboring, giving up your energy, and not being frightened by opponents. Those, these are all the things that Paul lists in this passage. May we, as believers, stand firm in one spirit, contending together for the gospel and not being frightened. At life, all right, at times, life can feel drab and monotonous. Maybe you get into a stretch of time where you're like, what, what am I even doing here? And you ask questions, and you reflect, and you're, you don't know what's going on. It, at times, life can be sad and discouraging. But one important truth that we've been exposing today is that God gives us hard work that's meaningful and rewarding. God gives us some hard work to do. But there's meaning and there's purpose in it. But... We choose. We choose whether or not we work at it. We don't just automatically step in it. We decide whether or not we're going to invest in the things that he wants us to do. Not only does God give us breath in our lungs right now for living, but he gives us meaningful work. The rest of Philippians is filled with a lot of practical tools that enable us to live worthy of the gospel. So that, it really is that, you know, hey, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is a big and somewhat ambiguous statement. But fortunately, the rest of Philippians describes really how you do that. It's very, very practical. The part that we've read so far is more big picture. It's kind of like big motivation for why we need to live our lives for Christ. But the rest of the letter gets really practical. It's just everyday life stuff. Some of the things that you learn if you read more in Philippians, it's things like how to rejoice in rough times, how do you find contentment in a bad situation? How do we endure suffering? Um, how do we put the goals and interests of other people above my own? How do I get rid of anxiety and worry? You can, you can get rid of anxiety. Did you know that? You don't have to live worried. A lot of people just accept that. Well, how, how do I focus my efforts on knowing Christ? There was, a, actually, when we were flying, that idea of anxiety, we were, um, when we were flying back, so we had our, 
itinerary, and in the morning, uh, we're like packing, and then we realize our, our, one of our flights got canceled. And we're like, oh man, we gotta change. Like not, once, once a flight gets canceled these days, you're like, I suddenly don't know how long it's gonna take me to get home. <laughs> and uh, anyways, Erin, she jumped on, she found another itinerary. It was leaving out of a different city, so we had to like drive south instead of north, but we got there. So we got it figured out. And so we're waiting for that airplane, and then that one got delayed three hours. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh great, now we're gonna miss our connecting flight. And uh, we've got all, so we, at this point, and by the way, the, the other airport that we went to was a really, really tiny one. They only had one gate. And I'm like, we're stuck in the middle of Pennsylvania, rural, and there's like, and the people that dropped us off were long gone. I'm like, how are we gonna get out of this city? <laughs> and um, so finally they say, all right, time to board right now. We jump on the plane and we're flying and we're like calculating. We're like, all right, kids, when we land, we're gonna, you may have all your stuff packed up because we're gonna run as fast as we can to the next gate because we're going to pray that there's a chance we get on. Otherwise, we're sleeping in an airport somewhere tonight in the middle of the country. And um, so we do it, and we, uh, we land, we run off the plane, and it's like, have you ever seen the scene from uh, Home Alone where all the family's running through the airport? <laughs> That's what it felt like. Our four kids, Dawson's carrying the luggage, he trips and like sprawls on the floor. I'm like, no time for that, let's go. <laughs> and so we finally make it. I'm like, we're, it's, already, it's already past when it said it was supposed to depart. But we get there, and we're like the last ones online and we get on the on the flight we're not all, even all together like we're separated in three sections but it didn't matter because we're going home and um, I it was kind of an exciting adventure for all of us I think but as I was reflecting on that situation Aaron and I both uh, at each stage where things changed or things were looked like they were not going to pan out you really have we had an opportunity to get really stressed and, and anxious about that and like filled with worry, like, well, what if, or what if we don't make that, or what if we don't make this, and then you can just cascade in a lot of different sections, but we just, we kept trying to encourage one another and to pray at the different moments for God's help and to trust him with the outcome, and it really, it helped for us to be able to keep encouraging one another away from that. We managed to go through an intense, unpredictable day without anxiety. Like, oh, it's actually possible to not be filled with anxiety, and, and by the way, when dads, like me, get anxious, or, or frustrated or in a hurry, then I tend to get really harsh and mean. And so that can turn like a travel day into a, like a brutal time for our kids if I'm just being critical and harsh and commanding. And so God's ways, and I actually thought about some of the verses in Philippians that we're not going to look at today that talk about what do you do with anxiety? What do you do with worry? And there's ways, they're so practical about how we handle those things. Those are, that's part of living worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, I'm not going to cover all those practical things today. As the summer goes on, we'll begin some other sermon series that, uh, where we're going to talk about practical, everyday ways of walking in obedience to God and how to understand the Bible. But here's a few next steps that you might take as you think about the verses we looked at today. One might be, maybe the next step is to read through Philippians. And maybe you spend time with God daily and you read your Bible daily, but you're not sure where to read. You could read this letter. It's relatively short. And if you do read it, I'd recommend just breaking it up a lot. Just each day, read a few verses, think on it deeply, spend a few minutes thinking about it, try to find a way that what you just read can, might apply to your day. And you can spend, you might find a lot of help from that. That's, I'm actually reading Philippians right now in my daily quiet time. I'm going through it real slow. Another next step you might take is to begin to follow Christ and start a life of significance. 
Maybe you have never decided, I will become a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to turn away from my life of sin and independence from God. And maybe you're, you're ready to decide to make Jesus the boss of every aspect of your life. Whenever a person does that, they say, Jesus, you are Lord, you're in charge now of my whole life, every part of it. That becomes the first step of infusing our lives with, and really our eternity, with meaning and significance. Another next step you might take is, I might need to change the focus of my life to be about other people. And what I mean by that is, I need to focus my life and my schedule and my resources on helping people find Jesus or helping people learn how to walk with Jesus or me just learning how to walk with Jesus in areas that I'm struggling right now. And that may feel like a big, ambiguous next step, but you might start by asking, you can ask yourself a question. What is my life really about? If I'm honest with myself, I'm going to get real honest with myself. And you say, what is my life about? Is my life about my own goals, my own ambitions, my own happiness, what I want out of life? Or have I made a conscious decision to seek the interests of Jesus? That's a really rare person. Somebody who has decided to pursue the interests of Jesus is a very rare person. Paul writes about Timothy. In this letter in Philippians, in the next chapter, he says about Timothy, he's like, I've got no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. He says, he talks about everyone else. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Like, basically, everybody around me, they're just out for what's good for them. Their own goals, their own desires. Man, it's so rare to have somebody who will genuinely serve people and be focused on the interests of Christ. So, changing the focus of my life to be about people, it's going to involve a lot of sacrifice. It's going to involve a lot of inconveniencing myself. But another next step, maybe, maybe this really is already the focus of your life. And you really, maybe you're not doing it perfectly, but you really are working to make your life about Jesus and people. If that is you, your next step might be to rejoice in that. And to remind yourself that my kingdom focus is worthwhile. Because sometimes we get worn down. We're like, I'm focusing on Jesus. I'm focusing on people. I'm trying to serve and invest and sacrifice. Sometimes you get worn out by that. Or like, is this worth it? Well, it is. It definitely is worth it. Paul would say that in Philippians. 1 Corinthians, there's a powerful verse that says, um, all of our labor is not in vain. We can rejoice in that. We can take courage and keep pressing forward. All of those exhausting efforts that you do to serve Jesus and to love people, they're not in vain. Your efforts are not in vain. God is going to use all of that. Even if it appears in the moment like it's not panning out, like I'm doing this stuff and it's not doing anything that I can see, God will still use it. If our life objective is to advance the gospel, we can face the day with courage, joy, and hope. In those quiet moments when you're feeling discouraged, like, man, what am I doing here? Well, I can say, I know why I'm here. I know why I woke up today. I know I've got a lot of stressful work to do, but I know why I'm here. God wants me to do his good work, and by his grace, I'm going to keep walking in it. I'm going to put the next foot in front of the other. I'm going to show you another uh, photo from our trip in New England. This is a photo of 
Uh, this is called Cadillac Mountain. This is in the middle of Acadia National Park. This is one of the most iconic places that they have there. And it's because you get this unreal view of the ocean and the forests and how lush and amazing it is. And we're, we went here because this is the spot where the, the sunset goes down. And I wanted to like see the sunset in this most idyllic place. And um, what ended up happening, though, was I could see the forecast was showing rain. I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> like, the clouds are going to come in, and we're not going to be able to, like, it'll just be gray, and it'll get dark, and this will be, like, our one opportunity for this life of a, you know, once-in-a-lifetime sunset view. And uh, I was getting ready to leave, and Aaron's like, why don't, we, why don't we stick around? I was like, oh, that didn't occur to me as a possibility. We could stick around and just see what happens. So what happened was um, the landscape started changing a lot. We could see uh, the rain starting to come in, so the clouds were coming in, and there was like these amazing like beams of light coming in over the forest, and we could see like a wall of rain starting to come towards us. But we had our car nearby, so a few, at a few points we went into the car when it, the rain was coming down. Uh, but the next photo, it changed more. We have those weird summer pictures, like every slide I noticed. So ignore the summer pictures. Okay, um, the next. So now it's like really foggy. And the sun is not really quite coming through, but it's sort of causing this glow over the whole valley that we we're looking at. And the ground, you know, the ground is wet from rain a few minutes ago. Another photo. Um, the sun did finally peak out, and it just brought every color in the hue of spectrum into, so there's purples and blues and orange and yellows just lighting up the rocks and the lake below. And of course, these pictures aren't even doing it justice. Next photo. Um, it got this, like, everything turned orange. Like the whole, everywhere was just orange and misty. Next photo. Um, and I just loved, like, this actually is not an edited photo, but it was, it was like the sky was a watercolor painting of like all these different colors mixed together. One more photo. And then this was after the sun went down. It kind of was like, changing again, and some of the rain had gone, and then it finally got dark. And it was amazing. And when, when you could see, I don't, if you've watched a sunset and you see the sun actually go down below the horizon, you actually watch it and you can see that last little second before the ball of fire just vanishes. And when that happened, I'm like, yes, <laughs> this was amazing. I started clapping and uh, people, everyone else started clapping too because it was so amazing. It was like God just totally put on like better than a fireworks show for all of us to enjoy. It was like no one could deny the existence of God in that moment. It was so amazing. And uh, God created so much beauty in a really short amount of time that I did not expect. There was, a lot of, there was so much dramatic change, like the colors changed, the way that clouds, there was just so much change minute by minute. And then before you know it, it was gone. I bring that up because there's times in life when God reminds us about death and he reminds us about how short our lives are. Sometimes you think about death when someone dies and you go to a funeral and you reflect on it. Um, sometimes there's just different times when we contemplate that. I think sunsets are sometimes used by God as like a daily reminder that our lives are short and they will end. Your life is short like a sunset. And in each of our lives, God creates so much beauty. There's so much opportunity that happens in your life. And then the landscape of our lives changes moment by moment. And things happen. You buy a house or you get married or you have kids or someone passes away. There's just so much change that happens moment by moment. And then it's gone. 
life goes so fast. And we have to decide what we're going to do with the short amount of time that God gives us. We can join God in the beautiful work that he's doing on earth. He invites us to be a part of his kingdom work. I have a hunch that this letter that we looked at today, that when Paul was writing it, he was just smiling the whole time. <laughs> because as he's writing to these Philippians, the people that he loved so much, and he has so much hope in what Christ is doing in his life, that you can just feel like joy and you know, excitement just bubbling up through those letters. And he, he says this. This is the last verse I'll look at. Philippians 1.20, he says, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything. He's like thinking about the end of his life. I'm not going to be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Even in the two great extremes of life and death, Paul only saw good options. Isn't that amazing? What if, what if in your life right now, you have good things and bad things going on, but when you look at them, you only see good options because of your perspective? That really, ha he was able to see his life that way because of his driving desire to be with Christ and his love of serving people. Oh, that I would be so clear about my assignments in life that I would only see good options in front of me. If we truly live worthy of the gospel of Christ, we can look forward to honor, not shame. If we leave it all on the field, expending our resources, of our lives for the interests of Jesus, we really don't need to be worried about being ashamed as we stand before God. I would like to live in a hopeful way, like Paul, where my expectation and hope is that Christ will be highly honored in my life and then in my death as well. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and when I do, uh, the team will come up in a second for our worship. But I just want to say next week, I'd love to invite you back. Uh, to our Sunday morning celebration. As Marie mentioned, it's our two-year celebration. It's pretty exciting to celebrate two years. My family moved to Santa Clarita on July 4th uh, in 2020. So that's actually, you know, tomorrow is like our, our official two-year mark. We moved on Independence Day. Pretty fun. And uh, next week during our service, we're going to have some exciting highlight videos to show what God has done. Um, uh, the senior pastor of our sending church, where I was on staff for many years, Josh De La Rosa and his family, they'll be here. Actually, they'll have a part in the service as well. And one special aspect of our service is going to be to recognize uh, the launch team, the, the folks that moved to Santa Clarita with us to get this work started, because they will have fulfilled their two-year commitment. They all made a two-year commitment. They signed a contract, and it's about to be done. <laughs> and so it's, it's a time for us to recognize and celebrate they've fulfilled it and they've done it well. And uh, so we, uh, we moved two years ago. It's going to be a really fun and exciting time next week. We're going to praise God for all that he's done. So let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the guidance uh, that you've given us through Paul in this letter to the Philippians and that um, there's a lot of joy and hope that we can have, even when things are bleak and difficult and grinding or monotonous. I thank you that you use our efforts, that our labor is not in vain, and that when we focus on the interests of Jesus and we focus on loving other people, well, there's a lot you do through it, and there's a way that you just 
lift our spirits, encourage us and cause us to grow and experience joy from that. We thank you for that, Lord. Help us to continually take steps of obedience and sacrifice in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.